This is the third episode in a mini-series that I've been calling the Questioning Series. And it all started with a post. I've been pondering an idea to open up some episodes of the Where Did You See God podcast for dialogue with folks that may be concerned or confused by Christianity, who may have been wounded by it, or who simply don't know what to think about God right now. I'm really grateful that I've been able to have these conversations. They've been a real gift to me. And not only were they enjoyable in the moment, but each of these guests have said incredibly important things that I hope we're listening to. And depending on where you're coming from and what you've experienced and what you're going through now, I hope you've been encouraged or inspired or motivated or maybe challenged, maybe convicted. Because these are real stories from real people and those experiences that are shared are shared with so many that are around you right now. Today's guest, Luke, is another friend of my friend Josh. He shares about how his experience with church had some damaging effects and where he is now as a result of that. But we spend a lot of time talking about how hard it is for us to authentically not just listen to others, but see others as who they are, actual real people made in the image of God, and the damage that can come if we're not actually listening and seeing. So I hope you will listen today because Luke's story is important. You're listening to episode 53 of the Where Did You See God podcast. Father God, I just want to thank you that you are God and you are good. And I want to thank you for this time with Luke and just the space to be able to talk. And right now, we just pray that uh, if there's anything you want to bring to the table, uh, anything you want to bring out, we just want to be open to that. I just want to invite you to speak instead of it being my words. I just thank you that these spaces can be more than just conversations. So we welcome that now. We thank you for how you can work. And we just look forward to seeing what comes from this. Let's pray in his holy name. Amen. So today I'm sitting virtually with Luke. Luke and I have never met, but Luke is uh, another mutual friend connection through Josh. And yeah, Luke, you, uh, you were one of the early ones to respond to Josh's post. And so my first question, just to kick things off, and then we'll see where this conversation goes, is what about the post caught your attention, drew you in, made you want to have a conversation? I just really appreciate opportunities for dialogue. Um, I don't, I don't know that there's a lack of it now as much. I think things have improved in the last five to 10 years, but I don't think I'm used to seeing a lot of people who are more oriented towards faith, specifically Christianity, like wanting to open up dialogue and even more so like willing to open up to the scathing criticism that can come from that dialogue and like actually sit with it and hold ideas and tension. So like every time I see someone trying to initiate something like that, it's always like, Ooh, Ooh, I want to be a part of this. (laughs) Tell me maybe the cliff notes version of, of how you understand your story and your interaction with God and Christianity here in 2020 in the year of our Lord. (laughs) Okay. I, was born and raised in Southeast Michigan. I was in church most of my life. I didn't really buy it until I was about 14. Mm-hmm. Um, I became a Christian at a Christian youth conference. And within maybe a month or two of that, um, my family picked a new church to go to. Mm-hmm. And it was not in a denomination I was used to. Um, It was very, very, very Pentecostal, which was already scary to me because I wasn't really from those circles that much. Like my parent, my mom was, my dad grew up Catholic and has always been like indifferent to it. Like, yeah, that's a thing people do, but it's not really something I'm, I've never seen him participate in something like that. Like he goes to church, he, you know, he worships, but he's a very, uh, he's a very subdued character. Uh, My mom, not so much when it comes to worship. The church we were attending, uh, in addition to being very Pentecostal and scary to me in that way, was very high control um, to the point that, depending on who I've talked to, some people call it a cult. 
it was almost immediate, the rules that were coming about, like, and it was never like, this is something that's a sin or this is something that's in the Bible. It was just like, this is a behavior that just should stop because it should. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're talking, we're talking apocalypse predictions, like experts are saying it could happen by the end of the week. And so, you know, you need to, like our youth group would be like, you should break up with your boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever, before then, you know, burn all your secular CDs. And, you know, I, I mean, like it got intense. It got real, real intense. There were situations where like someone had a mental episode in front of people and within a week there was a rumor going around that they had been demon possessed when it was literally just like they were off their meds. Mm-hmm. It was it was bad news bears in every possible way and it affected me mentally very, very negatively. Mm-hmm. I thought it was normal. I thought it was normal because, you know, they they create a situation for you in high control groups like that, where it's like, you're not really interacting with a lot of other people. You're not talking to people who've left because you're discouraged from talking to people who've left. You know, you're not talking to critics. And if you do talk to critics and they find out you're talking to critics, then they sit there and, you know, pick through everything that you've been told by this person. And they walk you through all the reasons why it's wrong and all the reasons why you shouldn't think that way. So basically anytime I had a doubt or a question or, Uh, a reservation about the things I was expected to do or a reservation about the things that I was expected to believe, not even just religiously, but like politically, uh, ethically, morally. There were just some things that like I felt really forced into. And then I would, I would voice that opposition and then immediately consequences. And as I got older, I was there for about five years. As I got older, it got to the point that they were kind of like edging me out a little bit. Um, because I, I had reached the point where I was like, I can't comply with this anymore. But my parents had a rule that I had to go to the same church as they did till I turned 18. Mm -hmm. So then I turned 18 and I was still there and I was just like, I can't comply with this. Like you're telling me I can't listen to secular music. I can't associate with certain types of people and very, 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 very patriarchal, very homophobic. And not just not just in the way of like, oh, you know, this is what we believe. It's a sin, whatever. Uh, my youth pastor bragged about chasing off a gay kid multiple times. Like he would be like, yeah, I told him don't come back because he's pro-, and I'm just and, and I, I would ask like the other kids and be like, did was he promoting something or like and he's like, no, he, he literally just said he's gay. That was literally all that was said. Mm-hmm. It was just a very hostile environment. And like. I was walking on eggshells constantly, but again, I thought it was normal. I thought it was, this is what going to church is like. So right around the time I was getting ready to graduate, um, another youth group I had been affiliated with came to me and said that they wanted to have me work for their middle school ministry. And I was like super into that idea, but I was so indoctrinated into this other group that I felt like I had to like ask my pastor's permission to be involved. which was a huge mistake because the conversation that ensued from that was like, oh gosh, just uncomfy on so many levels because he sat me down and I was like, hey, you know, I know I'm serving here in a certain capacity and like, I would hate to like be undermining that, but like I, you know, they're offering me this and like, it wasn't a paid thing. It was a volunteer thing. It was very clear that that was the case and I was fine with it. And he just starts with this, like, you know, there's no such thing as a free lunch and they don't really want you. They just want what you can offer them. And I'm like, well, like, no shit. It's a volunteer position. Like what, what are they going to give me? It's a volunteer position. I'm like, they're just nicer than you guys are. So that's really all I'm gaining from it. And so he starts making these comments about if I could control myself around middle schoolers and like some really creepy really creepy comments that were like really baseless. Like there was never anything up to that point or since that would have ever led anyone to believe that like that was in my nature. It was just kind of one of those like out of left field, like, Oh, can you be trusted around teenage girls? And I'm like, what? Yeah. So he sits there and just freaking rails against me for a solid hour and a half. And then he doesn't let me go out to see my mom by myself. He has to follow me out and tell my mom what he had supposedly told me during our conversation, which was a very watered down G rated 
sugar-coated version of what had actually been said. So I didn't feel like I could undermine that and say anything about it. Because again, I'm like very indoctrinated at this point. Mm-hmm. There were, gosh, it was just, it was real bad. It was real bad. So I went to college and that was kind of the end of my time at this church. And again, I'm thinking it's normal. So I go to this Christian college with intent to become a minister. I went to Taylor University in Indiana. I get around other guys, all of whom are very churchy. And they'll be like, yeah, you know, uh, I was my youth pastor's right-hand man. Like, uh, you know, we we used to go out every Saturday for coffee and we'd talk about, you know, whatever. We'd go to baseball games or whatever. And I'm just like, that doesn't sound like my experience with my youth pastor. Like, I had two youth pastors. One was really cool at a different church. The other was at the really culty church. I, I want to be clear just in case somebody listening to this knows right. the other youth pastor. Like, he was fine. He was good. So they would tell me these stories like, oh, you know, it was just great, like all the time. And then I would start to open up about my experience with church, thinking this is just what a normal church scenario is. And they would just be aghast looking at me like, dude, that's not normal. That's not healthy. That's not, you know, what what a leader is supposed to do because like I remember one story I told was like yeah my my youth pastor cared enough to take me out to the van in the parking lot at three in the morning and yell at me for three hours about my behavior and I'm just like that oh my gosh that wasn't healthy oh my gosh (laughs) like I was I I'm like I I was verbally abused by this person and I thought it was just like the admonition of the Lord because again you get indoctrinated enough you start to believe certain things a certain way so I'm in this Christian environment and that plants the seed of like okay so I've clearly been lied to about a few things and like if those things don't hold water what else is false? Like, and I'm taking these like really involved Bible classes. Like one of my old Testament professors was like, like had credentials out the yin yang. And like, she had worked on Dead Sea Scrolls translation projects. And she had been like an accuracy consultant for the message. Like, I mean, like she had been around and she was teaching us about all these things in the old Testament that, you know, uh, were thought to be like messianic prophecies that when you really get down into the nitty gritty linguistics of it, like it kind of doesn't make sense that it would be. And she was like, and that doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong. It doesn't necessarily mean that like the interpretation of it is wrong. It just means like, that's not how it's been viewed for a really long time. Or like different things I would find out about where it was like, oh, the way that this is viewed and taught in evangelical circles is only something that's existed for maybe a hundred years. Like I didn't realize there was a view of revelation that wasn't, we're all going to be raptured off the face of the earth. And there's going to be like, I didn't realize there was another way of thinking about that even. And that that was a relative, even that was a relatively new idea. So all the pieces started to fall apart pretty quick. It was like, I was in college and it was just like, I'm learning all these new things and I'm around people from all these different walks of life. And then, you know, like, God forbid, I met a gay person for the first time in my whole life. And I was like, dude, you're like not a filthy wacko pervert. I was led to believe all gay people were just like horrible people. And I'm like, you're just a, you're just a, you're just a dude. Mm -hmm. Like, and it, it just completely shattered my, it shattered my perception of a lot of things, particularly because of the church I had come from, uh, I ended up having to drop out of there because I ran out of money and uh, transferred to another college. I had kind of admitted that I had deconstructed pretty heavily to a friend. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I mean, uh, I rededicated uh, about a year or two after that. And then I got really when I moved out of my parents' house, which was about 2018, um, I got really plugged into a church in my area. And I was very involved in, um, I was a worship leader for the youth group. I was a youth leader in like a more personal sense. Um, I was leading a small group with young adults. I mean, I was very, I was there maybe at least 20 hours a week, probably. Like I was there a lot. I was very involved. 
it was there wasn't really anything bad going on there. Like it wasn't it was nothing like my other church experiences. But the burnout hit me hmm. really hard and really fast. And I happened to be paired for my small group with someone that just he wasn't someone who was ready for the idea that that kind of leadership could result in having to process through things with people. Mm-hmm. Wasn't ready for the idea that serving in that capacity would have to mean potentially having to really pick apart some ideas that, you know, maybe they're comfy to leave alone, but it's not helping anyone to leave them alone. Mm -hmm. And that got my burnout as high as it would go because I'm sitting here like, and the, the real last straw with that situation was um, this woman started attending our group. And she happened to mention that she had gone to the church that I went to. Mm. And uh, she was like, well, you know, they did a lot of bad things. And, you know, but maybe maybe part of it was my fault. Maybe I maybe I did something wrong. And I was like, no, maybe you did. But no, Mm. she was like, what do you mean? I'm like, get pissed, get pissed. I'm like, you have a right to get pissed. I'm like, even if you did something wrong, you know, if you were a teenager and these people were in a position of leadership, what what happened was still not acceptable. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, people are flawed. People are human, whatever, fine. But like, at the end of the day, if you are in a position of leadership, if you are at the top of the hierarchy, if you are the quote unquote de facto spiritual leader of an entire group of people, if you are biblically literate in the slightest, you ought to know better. And if you don't, and, and if you do slip up on that level, you ought to be able to, to return to that and say like, Hey, how can I correct this in a way that keeps, keeps the people that I've hurt in mind. And that, that was just never there. And, and I should clarify, like most of what happened was verbal or emotional it wasn't like that i know of it wasn't anything on a grander scale than that but it was still inappropriate behavior i made my co-host very uncomfortable and that resulted in the gradual decline of the group because it was like i I wasn't i wasn't encouraging her to like be angry for the sake of being angry i was encouraging her to like except that she had permission to not be okay with what had happened. Mm -hmm. And that didn't go over well. And I was telling a friend uh, around that time that, you know, I had gone to school to be a pastor and I knew all this theology and I knew all this philosophy and I didn't care anymore. Mm -hmm. I was like, I don't care about theology anymore. I'm tired of theology. I was in a Facebook group that was like metal and theology oriented Mm -hmm. and just like, in addition to what was already going on in my personal life, like going on there every day and seeing people just get into stupid freaking arguments was just absolutely not helpful. And Oh gosh, it was bad. It was just, it was a bad time. Uh, Within a few months I had admitted that I didn't really buy it anymore. And ever since then I've been, I guess identifying as as like an agnostic atheist, which for me means I'm not necessarily opposed to the idea of God. I haven't seen enough evidence to lead me to one conclusion or another. To to borrow a term from, uh, I don't know if it was Rhett or Link. It was one of those two guys. Mm-hmm. A, a hopeful agnostic. Like it's it's cool. It's With cool Rhett. to think that there might be something, um, but I don't have any real inclination that there is. Yeah. So that's that's pretty much where I'm at now. I didn't expect it to take me that long to get there, but <laughs> I appreciate you sharing because I think it's helpful. I, you know, I think if if you had just started the conversation with, yeah, I'm, I'm an agnostic atheist, right? Like, there's a whole backstory that not only precedes that, but even what you mentioned about what Rhett shared that influences that as well. You know, when Rhett shared his journey, he had a lot of people back home and you know around the world because they're very famous. <laughs> that didn't receive that well, but they missed that piece, which you shared and which stood out to me as well, that he wasn't dismissing God. 
he even said something to the effect of, I, I hope that I find out that I was wrong about certain things, like, but I don't know at this moment. Yeah. Yeah, I really appreciate you sharing too, because I think what you've experienced, and you're definitely not alone in experiencing, I mean, you ran into someone <laughs> at a whole different church that experienced that, but it, it hits at this core of, oh man, a, a number of things, definitely wounds, but also spiritual leadership, spiritual authority, but even more, you know, we could package that down to how is it that Christians and churches present God? What is it that they present and say, this is the church? And in your experience growing up, you spent a lot of time at a church that packaged God and the church in a very specific way that both spoke into your identity in some destructive ways, but also spoke into how you should identify others in destructive ways. Yeah. And influenced how you understand the functioning of, you know, the body of believers in a way that doesn't sound very much like what Jesus set up as the first church. Yeah, <laughs> like your exp experience sounds very different from that. Oh, yeah, for sure. When you think about the, the character of Jesus, how has that picture of him shifted from like, who was he communicated as? either directly or indirectly in that mm -hmm. one church, in the next church, and kind of where you are now, how you understand, not necessarily even was he a real person, but the character of what defines him. Mm -hmm. So at my old church, uh, the image was definitely Revelation Jesus, big horse fire eyes, tattoo on the hip, big sword, scary Jesus. You better not mess up, Jesus. Yeah, beardless white Jesus. Very, very white notion of Jesus. Like, I, I don't know how to unpack what I mean by that. Yeah. Like, so I guess side tangent to what I'm saying, I think there's like a very American-centric, Eurocentric picture of Jesus um, that has kind of become pervasive. Mm -hmm. And part of it comes from the fact that there, there's an alarming number of people in churches nowadays that are very familiar with the New Testament, not very familiar with the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. And to not understand the Old Testament is to not understand both where a lot of Jesus's worldview and what he would have taught and what he would have said and what he would have referenced came from, but also just the context and the thought, the way of thinking that was, was popular at the time. Mm -hmm. historical context is thrown away when that's the picture of Jesus that people have. And that was very much the picture that I was presented with. It's a very vengeful Jesus. It is a very, I don't want to say politically motivated Jesus, because like there, there are a lot of political overtones in the gospels, a very American political Jesus, I guess mm -hmm. we'll say. And, and a Jesus that is very, very concerned with aspects of people's lives that you don't really see mentioned in, in uh, scripture. Mm -hmm. So from then to now, sorry, uh, I just, I've never, I haven't had to explain <laughs> or try to encapsulate my idea of Jesus to someone since I deconstructed, like deconverted. So it's just weird to think about. <laughs> I see... I, I think when I think about what the character of Jesus is from my current worldview, I think in a lot of ways, he, what he teaches and how he acts embodies a sort of frustration with the status quo that's been put in place by people for years ahead of him in the way that lower classes are treated, in the way that certain teachings are presented. I, I could go on and on just unpacking that but like he was a challenge that's the best way i can think to describe the way i see jesus he was there presenting a challenge both a challenge and an invitation both an opposition to norms that had been set in place by people who at best didn't know any better and at worst were exercising and abusing their power over others and an invitation to those people and the people who had also fallen under their power to step into something more, to step mm -hmm. into something, 
I, I'm trying to like not plagiarize Rob Bell because I'm sounding really Rob Bell right now and I'm not <laughs> I'm not vibing with it. Mm-hmm. Like I love Rob Bell, but I'm not Rob Bell. Well, I think what you shared, I really like that idea of Jesus existed to challenge. Because when you said that, what immediately made me think is I don't think there was a single person that Jesus interacted with that wasn't challenged in some way. Yeah. I don't think there's a single person that met him that was like, oh yeah, this totally makes sense and I'm on board. Yeah. Even people who were ready were still challenged. I think of the um, the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and he's like, hey, I've kept all these commands. I've done all the things and I'm I'm ready. Is there anything left? I'm ready, I'm ready. And Jesus is like, sell everything you have and give it to the poor and then come follow me. And he walked away with his head down. Even someone who had committed his life just trying to reach eternity and was ready to do anything, like still found themselves challenged. The Pharisees, they spent their whole lives seeking God, training, learning the scripture, following these 600 and some rules every single day because they had a desire to Mm -hmm. seek God. Actually, while you were talking earlier, I pulled up Isaiah 58, which I come to so much because I think it's just very relevant. But I think a lot about... Isaiah 58, 2, and it says, yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways. And I'll skip ahead a little bit. They ask of me righteous judgments and delight to draw near to God, right? Like that sounds good. That sounds like maybe it's one of the Psalms or something that, you know, is a happy Psalm, but Isaiah 58, there are chunks of it that are not happy. <laughs> it's yeah. why we fast. You haven't seen us, God. And then God says, behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice be heard on high. Verse two makes it clear that they wanted to seek God. They wanted to delight in God. So like, even if we think best case scenario, that church that you were growing up in, let's say best case scenario, they weren't trying to abuse their power. They weren't trying to like one to the point you made to the other person that attended there, you were still wounded and that Mm. still matters. Um, But even if they we're trying to seek God. The reality is just like in Isaiah 58, where they desire to seek God and they ended up oppressing and hurting others. Mm. Your church did that. Um, It sounds like the other church did it in a very different way when you were trying to like process and say, no, actually your wounds matter. And like, you should be able to be honest with your wounds. They were like, ah, like maybe they weren't saying this, but there are churches that be like, no, 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 no. Let's not, and let's get along and they ignore the negative things to create like kind of a faux peace and yeah and so yeah what is that does that strike anything in you yeah i think like from my experience with church in general not just that that church in particular it's so easy for people to deal in extremes either we're you know kumbaya and we're holding each other's hands and everything is just just peachy or it's hellfire and brimstone. And like, I don't see a lot of in between. I think peace is great. Peace is awesome. We, we love peace. But peace that isn't real isn't peace. If you are silencing people who have very valid things to say, if you are talking over people who don't look or sound the way that the people on staff at your church look and sound, it's so easy to glaze over those things. And then you find yourself in a situation where, you know, something happens at a national level Mm -hmm. and, you know, I don't think I have to, I I don't think I have to say what I'm referencing. I think we all know something happens at a national level and you're at your predominantly white church. And all of a sudden you're like, Hey, like these are the voices we need to be listening to. And you have one panel discussion And then those voices are never heard again. And it's, you know, it's one of those things where it's like trauma, whether it's collective or individual, is such an integral part of the human experience. And I I think like, even when you look at the stories in the Bible, you kind of can't get away from that idea. And so many of the stories in the Bible, especially the Old Testament, not only begin with, but in many cases revolve around a person's trauma and what happened because of it. Like, I mean, Joseph, that whole story is about trauma up till like the last few verses. 
And then it's just like, Hey, yeah, no, here's some food, you know, like just how people respond to that is so important. And I think in attempt to make church, I don't want to say accessible because that doesn't make it accessible to make it palatable for people. I, I think people get scared away from that. I think owning up to that and owning up to the fact that we, you know, the church does contribute to that sometimes and it's uncomfy to talk about it. And it's uncomfy to talk about like, how does my behavior have to change? It's just like any other relationship. Like if you're married and you do something that really deeply wounds your spouse and they come to you with it, you're, if you're a halfway decent person, your response isn't going to be like, dude, you're just emotional. Like you're, you're just so unreasonable. It's going to be like, okay, well, what did I do? Like, how did I cause that wound? Like, like walk me through the process. What did I do? And how does my behavior need to change? Because like, when there's a real love and a real commitment, you want to both help to be a part of the healing of those wounds, but also prevent further wounds from happening. But the uncomfy part is the part where you have to hear that you did it. <clears throat> Gosh, I'm sorry. I, I'm getting ranty, but like, I'm super passionate. about this. I mean, and this is, important stuff and even that analogy you gave of marriage you know what it struck in me is something that I've you know I've been married for a little over 11 years and there's been a lot that I thought I understood that I can now see I didn't and I've been growing in my understanding of not just what it means to be married but uh, to profess to be a Christian Mm -hmm. be married to someone who professed to be a Christian to say that we have a Christian marriage a marriage that we want to give back to God, right? What does that actually mean? And I realized that when I don't actually understand who God is in that, who my wife is in that, and who I am in that, then I'm going to engage it based on what I do understand, which is the normal human responses. Like, if I'm a good person, then I should be treated well. You know, my, yeah. my wife should never do anything to hurt me. And we also in our weakest moments believe that we're always right and kind of hits at what you're saying. Like Mm. we can just assume, well, I didn't mean to, I didn't do this. Well, they must be. And you can fall into this trap where your capacity to be happy in marriage can end up being entirely based on your belief in what the other person needs to change or what they need to do. And what challenged me about the idea of having a marriage that I am saying I have given to God is that what scripture tells me is that husbands should love their wives as Christ loved the church. Well, that's a very different thing than this whole logical train that I was on because Mm. how Christ loved the church is that he was constantly giving of himself, even when they were rejecting him, (laughs) even when people were insulting him, even when people were misrepresenting him and questioning him because I've made a lifelong vow. And so that means there are going to be moments where if I was just looking after my self-preservation, then yeah, I, I need to dip. Yeah. But if I'm making a lifelong vow in a marriage that I'm saying is under God and through God, then it might mean I need to change what logic I'm, I'm using. And I think this is where the church and the expressions of the church get tripped up because we've lost sight of who God is and we've lost sight of who we are in the midst of it. And we're responding based on our logic, which is why you can have thousands of denominations all saying that they are the right one and the other ones are wrong. It's why you can have, you know, the environment that we're in now where someone can say, well, I don't see how you can vote for someone so and be a Christian. I actually had someone, a friend, tell me that the other day they were assuming something about me. And then they went into why that thing, they just can't see how that kind of person be honoring God. I'm like, but you can't see right now, you are entirely dismissing me and my faith based on your idea and assumption of what I am. And that's now driving how you interact with me rather than what scripture says is that we're called to be unified. If you are brothers and sisters in Christ, you're called to be unified. What you're doing is not unifying, it's dividing. So, right, like we get into this issue of identity of who we understand God to be, who we understand ourselves to be, and who we understand others to be. And when we mess that up, 
when you were sharing your story, you're not just some guy who didn't really do much of that. Like you went to a Christian college, you studied theology, like you've, yeah. you've gotten into the Bible. So you weren't just being flighty with it. You were diving into these things and to spend that much time in that. And then to look, step back and look and see the type of expressions of that, that were in front of you. Like, okay, I want to believe that this is true. So why are these churches operating like this? Yeah. If this God of the Bible is real, then how in the world, 2000 years later, does it look like it looks now? And it's yeah. not surprising that so many people are wrestling with what in the world do I do with God? Because we're representing God in some weird ways. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's this really unfortunate stigma that like people who leave the faith are automatically were lukewarm when they were Christians because like mm. the number of times that somebody's told me, well, you were never real Christian. And I'm just like, first of all, that usually comes from someone who didn't know me when I was a Christian. And second of all, if I didn't care about my faith, I wouldn't have gone looking for the answers I went looking for. Mm -hmm. And granted, had I not gone looking for those answers, I might still be a Christian. But there are a lot of people who, and, and this goes back to the idea of creating a false peace for yourself, mm -hmm. you know, peace at any cost. There are a lot of people who, when those questions do come up inside of them, when those doubts, when that dissonance comes up, they just say, no, no. No, we're not going to entertain that. It's more important to me that I could hang on to what I've been doing up to now and maintain that. There might be different things riding on the reason why they want to keep that going, you know, be that a marriage or a paid clerical position or whatever. But to me, it's really sad that when someone does leave the faith, there is that assumption because like, and, and I don't say any of this to brag, but I say this because I'm not the only person I know in my situation. Mm -hmm. I know some very biblically literate atheists and agnostics who, when I met them, were very firm believers. Yeah. They can have better conversations about the Bible than most Christians I know. And that's my thing, too. I love the Bible. I wouldn't use it as my basis for my morality because I come to a point in my life where I don't feel like that works anymore. But like, I am fascinated by what's in there and the history of it and controversies about things that are in there and, and all that stuff. I'm, I'm super fascinated about it. I still love to talk theology with people and talk about Bible stories with people. And even though I don't believe that that, that part of me didn't die because I wasn't halfway there. It wasn't a half-baked thing for me. It was the thing that my whole life revolved around. Going hand in hand with that, you know, there's this assumption that it's always just the people like I, I it's it's so funny to me because when I meet people who want to talk about you know what happened to me or when someone I I've known for a long time that hasn't seen me since before I deconverted sees me mm -hmm. and they want to talk about what happened to me they want to talk about you know well well what threw you off they always assume it was just people and that it, there I didn't find any doctrinal issues or any historical anything or any of that and it's a very multifaceted for me and lots of other people it's a very multifaceted thing it's not just like one day you wake up and you're like people are jerks so that means god must not be real you mentioned like the pharisees and how good intentions don't necessarily justify crappy behavior and i think the pharisees are the best example of that because it was never about abusing power it was never about you know oppressing people it was about okay We've lost so much of our tradition, so much of our history, and we, we need to get the people who know and are educated together so that we don't lose that big part of our culture as we're being occupied by other nations. Mm -hmm. Like, that's a really noble thing. I think that's awesome. But the problem is ego gets in the way and greed gets in the way and status gets in the way and you're in a community where the average person is extremely poor and you are educated and they are not and you are the you are the tradition in a sense like if you and the people you are in collaboration with go away you got maybe 50 to 100 years before all that knowledge is wiped out 
So like, you're kind of a big deal. And I think a combination of like those factors led to the behavior that we see in the gospels. And, and that's the other thing. It doesn't necessarily mean that the Pharisees, that even the ones we see Jesus interacting with were bad guys per se. Mm-hmm. It was just that in that moment, there was some kind of behavior that had crept in. There was some kind of attitude that had crept in a sort of elitism or whatever that had led to the things that he was addressing. When Jesus even says, as they're doing the worst possible thing and killing him, forgive them for they know not what they do. Like he even had awareness that they just have no idea, even in their best intentions, even if they think there were Pharisees that really believed they were honoring God as they killed the son of God. Right. So it's like, Jesus was aware, even in that moment, they're missing it, which I think brings us to when we think of today, when there are so many people that have had stories like yours, where you were part of churches, you were authentically trying to live whatever it meant to be a Christian and whatever it meant to seek God. And you had these negative experiences, whether it's around the verbal and emotional abuse or misrepresentation of what scripture says or abuse of power or people being sent away because they didn't match what they should match. Like all these things, there are so many people that have that story of like, I wanted to be a part of the church, but this doesn't look like what it's supposed to be. And so the question becomes, and this is a question for the church is, what does the church need to do to, to get right? Days could be spent processing through that. Oh, but I, I do think I come back again to what you said, which again, which was just so great about Jesus came to challenge because he interacted with people across the spectrum from the Pharisee to who the Pharisee said the sinners were mm-hmm. and was able to meet them in an authentic way. And those who were willing to listen to and follow him, it didn't matter what, what they were coming from. The main thing was, were they willing to listen and to follow? And their lives were transformed for that point. Yeah. Uh, you know, even like Nicodemus as a Pharisee was like, his world was rocked. He spent all of his life seeing the world in a certain way. And then he interacts with Jesus. And he's like, the world doesn't look like what I thought it looked like. Yeah. And so how does the church get better at actually seeing people as Jesus saw them rather than what, you know, the the person in your church did who totally dismissed a person based on who they said they were. And that's a hard thing because it's something that's kind of baked into us to make generalizations about people, to make assumptions about people. And then going back to a word you used before, you know, when there's indoctrination as well, and we're told what we're supposed to think, we're told how we're supposed to respond in certain things it can be really hard to break that. And when you add that to then a greater system of, of a, how a church works or a denomination works, it can make it even harder to see outside of that. Yeah. And I think this is what we're seeing around us often and a lot of people being hurt by it that don't need to be. Yeah, no. absolutely. So here's the question that's popping in my head right now. From your position as someone who currently identifies as an agnostic atheist, if you could say, (laughs) there's a lot of things you would want to say, but if you could say one thing now to the church as though the church as an entity could hear this, what would you want to say to the church right now? The entire notion of Christianity revolves fundamentally around the idea that a group that was once considered to be out is now in, is now allowed to be included. There were people in that time who said that the table was too short for those individuals and for that group. I think the thing that I notice the most when I look at the gospels and when I look at Jesus in particular is we know that there are prostitutes there. We know that there are tax collectors there. We know that there are, you know, a rogue Pharisee or two here and there. We don't ever see Jesus saying, Hey, I think you're still a trash person. Mm 
And until you are completely out of the life you were in when I found you, I can never fully accept you or love who you are. We don't see that. We don't see those conversations. But what we do see is dinners shared and fishing and a community of people who probably never fully fit the definition that people at that time had of a good person. And so I think if I could say any one thing, it would be if there was room at the table then, even though people thought that there wasn't, like you have to be open to the idea that there still is and that maybe that hasn't changed, but what's changed is just what those faces look like. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, and I could, un, gosh, I could unpack that for hours, wow. hours and hours and hours. If you really are someone who claims that the life of Christ is compelling to you, and you are someone who claims that the teachings of the Bible are compelling to you, then you have to accept that so much of the narrative of the Bible is the excluded becoming included, the oppressed finding justice, and to ignore that part of the religion that you follow and that you claim to practice is to miss such a huge and beautiful chunk of the tradition and the teachings of that religion. The other thing I would say, piggybacking slash counterpoint to that would be, I say we, even though I'm not Christian anymore, but I'll just go with it. We, we like to think we're Esther. We like to think we are Samson. We like to think that we are David. Not that David was, you know, a particularly good person throughout the entire story, but sometimes, sometimes we're Haman. Sometimes we are pre-conversion Saul, you know, uh, sometimes we are King Saul, you know, some, sometimes we are the bad guy. And I think it's really difficult to say that and hold the idea intention that you believe that the path that you're on is the right one, but that also you are doing some potentially really harmful things without realizing it sometimes in the name of that path that you are on. The difference between a villain and an anti-hero is that an anti-hero knows they're messed up mm. and they do the best they can with it. Mm. And that self-awareness is just so, so, so important. I'm, and I'm glad you mentioned Saul because I think that's such an important picture because Saul, like before the conversion, he was actually a really great guy on a certain level, right? He was a Hebrew, yeah. Hebrew, Pharisee of Pharisees. He had zeal. Like he had a whole list of how incredible he was and how respected he was. And the shift, like we all want to see ourselves, like you said, as Paul, not as Saul. The shift of what took him there was utterly destructive to his entire life, was like shattered everything that he held as valuable, turned it into rubbish. And he even had to have Jesus say to him, why are you persecuting me? Like you are doing something absolutely awful. And I just think it's important because I think we're so afraid of that introspection. We're so afraid of that honesty. Um, yeah. but, but you're right. Like what happens though, if we are not willing to be challenged by Jesus, we can end up being destructive to others. It's like uh, what Jesus says, you know, let the little ones come to me. And, you know, if anyone leads any of these little ones that are following me astray, it'd be better for a millstone to be tied around their neck and they'd be thrown into the ocean. What Jesus says he came for was to bring life and life to the fullest. And the reality is when you were in a, two spaces, three spaces that were supposed to be spiritual body, spiritual families, you did not experience full life. And that's something that, you know, needs to be contended with by the people who were a part of that environment. And I, and I mean that both specifically for you, but also broadly, the number of churches that don't actually cultivate or to create space for the full life that Jesus is offering need to be willing to say, where are we missing the mark? Yeah. What are we getting wrong here? Where are we being too restrictive or where are we not being aware enough? What is going on here that's 
making us create an environment that may look good, like in Isaiah 58, two, but is actually Isaiah 58, three and four and five, mm. we're causing issues and we yeah. are dishonoring God. We are persecuting Jesus. Yeah. I mean, everything you're sharing is, is really important. And I want to come back to the other thing that you said too, that so often when somebody communicates what you've communicated, where you are in your understanding of God and the church, that they can dismiss your entire history mm. with God and the church. I think it's really important for people to hear that they shouldn't do that. <laughs> they should yeah. not dismiss an, a person's entire history and understanding simply because their current position in relationship with God does not match what they think it should. Yep. Because everyone who thought they had relationship with God when Jesus came was wrong in their understanding. Yeah. Jesus challenged it. And those that were actually willing to be humble and change were brought to a new place of understanding that looked entirely different, but was actually more full, more fulfilling than anything that they had done prior, which is why the Apostle Paul was willing to leave the life of luxury and respect and adoration and mm -hmm. enter a life where he was stoned and flogged and shipwrecked, left for dead, and eventually murdered. He wanted that life more because he discovered that there was something in this that was way better than all of that. But that didn't come from his intelligence or even his hard work. <laughs> yeah. It came through something very different. Yeah, absolutely. To piggyback off that point, people will say like, oh, well, you left the church. So like, why should we care what you have to say about the church? And it's just like, there's a big crowd of us who don't, even if we never come back, because mm -hmm. us won't. We don't want other people to experience that. You know, yeah. we don't want other people to have to feel the way that we felt in the past. And like, for me personally, I want the opportunity for people to do better. And I, I think that does start with dialogue so much of the time. Yeah. The page that I run, like I, the reason I started it was because when I was deconstructing, I had the really Christian people who were like, here's all the reasons you should still believe in God. Here's the, you know, presuppositional apologetics, whatever. Mm -hmm. And then the Matt Dillahunties of the world who are like, you absolutely shouldn't believe this is absolutely ludicrous. Here's all the reasons why I'm going to unpack it for you. I'm not saying either one of those things is objectively bad. There was no one I could listen to when I was deconstructing that didn't have an agenda. Mm-hmm for either me leaving the faith completely or me staying in the faith. And I was like, I would, I really wanted to create an environment where it was like, okay, I'm going to say who I am. I'm going to state what my beliefs are. But at the same time, I want to create a space that like, it's not about you should leave or you should stay. It's about what harmful ideas did you get from your experience? What do you need to unlearn? What do you need to leave behind? what has to come out of the box and stay out of the box. Yeah. Whether you choose to be, you know, whether you end up being an atheist, whether you end up being a Christian, whether you end up being pagan, whatever, what is it that you came away from your experiences with religion, with the church that you need to do away with in order to move on into the next part of your life in a healthier way of looking at yourself and the people around you because like, I, gosh, I can't stress enough, like how important I think dialogue is, especially between people who don't agree. Mm -hmm. It's, it's so easy, especially with the internet. It's so easy to talk over people and it's so easy to surround yourself with people who only think the way that you do. And that's not to say you have to tolerate antagonistic behavior. Cause like I've, gosh, I've had to block so many people this year, especially because there's just certain things that I don't tolerate, but I also don't want an echo chamber, you know? Right. Like what's, gosh, what's the point of understanding if your only reason for understanding is weaponizing that understanding? Mm. Like what, what good is all your research? What good is all your reading and investment of time in a thing if the only thing you're going to do with that knowledge, the only thing you're going to do with the understanding you've gained is to weaponize it against other people. <laughs> like, I don't see the point in that. <sighs> Sorry, I get really passionate about certain things. And like, 
this this whole thing is is one of those things because like i just uh yeah 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 being able to have these conversations we know it should be able to happen and it's just mind-blowing how often it just doesn't happen and i think it's for the two reasons that you mentioned one directly how too often people are really at war they're weaponizing to protect what they have and to attack the other yep. they have agendas that they are trying to accomplish and that leads to the second thing which is implied when you were talking about the agendas the real issue is that they weren't actually talking to luke they weren't yeah. actually listening to luke they were engaging with agnostic atheist and approach yeah. that entity <laughs> that caricature yeah. based on their understanding of it and the necessary goals either to change them to destroy them to but meanwhile luke's sitting there like i'm listen to me i'm <laughs> like, over here guys don't, yeah we don't need to fix anything right now just listen to me yeah i will listen to you and that mm. is too often absent but that's what jesus did i mean if we yep. want to say we follow jesus then we can look at how he interacted with people because he actually engaged people as people made in the image of God, yeah. whether they were a Pharisee oppressing people or a blind beggar on the side of the street ignored by everyone or a tax collector or a woman caught in adultery or a woman that had been married five times and couldn't even get water at the same time. He engaged with people as people authentically, lovingly listened to them, knew when to speak truth, knew when to confront, but it was all from this space of actually living out what he told other people to do, to love God and love others. And too often, that's not what we see in religious Christianity, which yeah. is what described. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's so, so, so easy to go into a situation assuming you know everything there is to know about the situation. Um, and I think the other thing, in addition to that, is like we... And, and I don't mean we like evangelicals or Christians. I mean, as humans, especially in Western thought, we love a monolith. We love to think we're addressing everyone that fits into a demographic because we're talking to one person who does. We love to talk to capital C Christians and capital A atheists. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and it goes even further than that into, you know, political ideologies and ethnicities and things. But it's such a weird way of thinking. You you do have a a wealth of experiences to draw from if you are able to actually listen. Be kind to your deconstructing and deconverted friends because growing up religious in even the best of circumstances can be really traumatic and really confusing and that's just if you're not gay or you're not the only person of color in an all white church or you're not whatever else, you know, if, if you're that's if you look like everybody else, it's already that way. And if you don't, it's even more so. So just like be be understanding. But I mean, what that reveals is there's an opportunity, like not just be kind and understanding, but cash, if more people were really present. Yeah, really present. Yeah. That how much that is needed, like how much yeah. you have needed it, how much that is needed, and how much that could transform things around us, and probably not the things we expect. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I think so much of what we talk about, and even a lot of what we've talked about in this conversation, like it's easy to say, like, yeah, this needs to apply to you know, church. And obviously it does, but like, there's so many things that at the end of the day, it's just like, we need to be better humans in general. Luke and I talked about so much more, and due to time, I wasn't able to capture it here. But there was one moment that really got me thinking, and it was actually towards the end as we were about to sign off. 
does this differ heavily from how how you're used to having these conversations and like what you're used to the podcast being? Yes and no. Yes, in the sense that most of the guests haven't been agnostic atheists, right? Like most of the guests would identify as Christian, but no in two senses. No in the sense that it's it's always very just, uh, my hope is for it to be authentic and conversational and just and just people processing life together. And no in the other sense that uh, what I've, what I never want this to be is just a very fake stereotypical, let me tell you what the Lord's done for me today. And like, it's, it's kind of putting on an act. Yeah. Uh, and because the reality is, is that everybody that I've had on also has questions and concerns and doubts and confusions. Most of the stories have really significant moments where it's like, what in the world, God, <laughs> I don't even know. If yeah. I believe you. Right. And so like, I think in that sense, it's not different because it's just real people <laughs> processing this incomprehensible thing that is, yeah. that is God. So I want to share the reason why that stood out to me and the challenge that I have for you today. The reason that that interaction stood out to me is because somebody could hear the name of this podcast, Where Did You See God?, and make the assumption that someone who is agnostic or atheist could not or should not be on the podcast. Either could not because they wouldn't have anything to share, or should not because they could end up dishonoring God. But if you've gotten this far in the episode, you already know that Luke was a great guest on the Where Did You See God podcast. He fit. Because what we're doing here is simply processing together, asking questions. The whole question, where did you see God, isn't even necessarily an assumption of the existence of God, but an asking of a question that pushes us to explore the world. And that is what Luke has been doing even in his own spaces. He mentions a space during the podcast, which is called Unlearning Together, which as he shared, is a place where people can go to safely process, question, and explore things together. As Christians, I think it's good for us to be honest about the fact that we have built up barriers to people that we assume are not like us or don't think like us. But here's the other thing, and this is the challenge. Sometimes we actually don't build a barrier, but we're opening a door for the wrong reason. And this is what I mean. There may be someone who has gotten to the end of this episode who is now thinking, Paul, you messed up. You missed a golden opportunity to save Luke. You could have, you could have converted him, and you didn't do it. You didn't press in. The reality is the goal of this conversation was not to convert Luke. I didn't know Luke before this episode. My goal in this episode was to honor Luke by listening to his story. And we hit this during the episode. We talk about how sometimes we can go into something with an agenda. It's not wrong to want to inspire someone to know who God is. But if in having that agenda, I dishonor the identity, the story, the reality of that person, I might not actually be representing God in that moment. This is a tricky thing for Christians because even in our most authentic moments, we may desire for people to know the God that we know, but may fail in actually representing him well, actually communicating him well. And in our worst moments, we can do what Luke mentioned. We can weaponize the things of God. We can turn God into a battering ram that we shove into people's lives. I'm inspired by Jesus, who knew how to authentically engage with anyone that crossed his path, whether Pharisee or beggar, the man who lived by every law and the person who was dismissed as a sinner. He engaged with each one of those authentically, and he represented God powerfully in those interactions. Christians, every day, God gives us opportunities 
to authentically see, hear, and love others. It is important for us to be honest about our capacity to mess that up, our capacity to do that in our own ways, our capacity to do that from our own strength. It is important for us to own the reality that in our best intentions, we can actually hurt others. Because it's in that humility that we can actually learn how to love. As long as we're operating in pride, we cannot authentically love in the way that God is calling us to. And we end up hurting people like Luke and like Aaron and like so many others that you may be thinking of right now. People who authentically position themselves to experience God and the church and have been wounded by us Christians, by us. But tomorrow is a new day and the interactions you have will be opportunities to practice what it actually means to see, to hear, and to love. So if you want to see God tomorrow, here is my challenge. Don't simply do some independent activity, but get out and allow yourself to be used to see, hear, and love someone else. Luke gave an even more specific challenge. Do this with someone who thinks differently than you, that looks different than you, that has experienced different things than you. Because God's invitation for us to experience him is not meant to be in a silo. It is meant to be within community. So go out, see, hear, and love others. And when you do, ask yourself, where did you see God? Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the Where Did You See God podcast. And I would love for your stories to be a part of it as well. So there are a number of ways that you can do that. You can check out our Facebook page at Where Did You See God podcast. You can go to anchor.fm slash where did you see God, or you can leave a brief voice message at 804-372-3836. I would love to hear your stories. And if the stories you've heard have encouraged you, uh, think of someone else who could be encouraged as well and share it with them. The music you've been listening to is You'll Walk, You'll Run by Urban Doxology. They are a solid group and you will love listening to the rest of the music. So check them out. And as always, as you go through your day, ask yourself, where did you see God?